Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Please visit www.audiblepodcast.com castle for your free audiobook download. Podcastle, episode number 58, for June 23rd, 2009, Nine-Fingered Maria by Hilary Moon Murphy. Welcome to Podcastle. I'm M.K. Hobson, and today's story is Nine-Fingered Maria by Hilary Moon Murphy. I think you're all really going to enjoy this one. It's a beautiful story about magic and how much you have to pay, or steal, to get what you want. One element of the story, which is somewhat evident from the title, is the magical status of fingers in human mythology. While in Europe, extra fingers were commonly associated with witchcraft, in other cultures, polydactyly is considered lucky. In the days of the ancient Chaldeans, those of royal birth with extra digits would have special divinations cast on their behalf. Going a bit further back, wisdom was often emblemized by an individual with many fingers or even double hands on each arm. Gives the term all thumbs a whole new meaning. But let's leave the human species aside entirely and consider the feline. If you've spent any time around cats, you may have encountered a polydactyl cat, that is, a cat with extra toes, up to as many as seven. Boston ship captains thought that these cats were more dexterous and had better sea legs, and prized them as quite lucky to have on board. Ernest Hemingway was once given such a cat by a ship's captain. When Papa died in 1961, his former home in Key West became a home for his multi-toed felines. Today, it houses approximately 50 descendants of that six-toed Tom, giving rise to the nickname Hemingway Cats. They're also often called Thumb Cats, which I find a bit more sinister, especially when you consider unsubstantiated reports that the name comes from the fact that they can use their extra digits like opposable thumbs. I don't know about you, but the day cats get opposable thumbs is the day we lose our long Darwinian war against nature. We may control the tuna supply now, but once they can start working can openers, we're all doomed. The author of today's story is Hilary Moon Murphy. She's a librarian, storyteller, and parent. In her spare time, she runs the Twin Cities Speculative Fiction Writers Network, the best networking site for writers of SF in Minnesota. If you're in the neighborhood, she writes, come to one of our events. You can find out about these events at meetup.com, where their group name is MN Spec. The story is read by Christopher Renaga. He's a storyteller, which in this day and age, he says, translates as a novelist and short story writer, singer, and songwriter. He's a recipient of a Bazinella Literary Award for short fiction and a graduate of Clarion West 2008. He recently made his first professional short fiction sale to Cemetery Dance. Congratulations, Christopher. Enjoy the story. Nine-Fingered Maria by Hilary Moon Murphy Spying on the neighbors when they moved in was a time-honored tradition in my house. My mom and grandpa would peer out from behind the lace curtains of our window and note every item coming out of the moving van. Look at those lamps, mom would say. 
her medical alert bracelet glinting as she scribbled the information in her observation log. What kind of person has lamps shaped like chorus girls? Grandpa, who did not speak much, just licked his lips and refocused his binoculars. Me? I prefer to do my spying up close. A short boy like me could get away with a lot. Most people assume that I was just a dopey little kid when I was really almost twelve. I'd stand outside, bouncing my tennis ball in a totally absorbed way, and then send my ball flying in the direction of the neighbor's house and pretend to lose it. This was harder than it sounds. In San Francisco, almost no one has front yards. Only a few scraggly bushes or flowers and containers break up the relentless landscape of concrete. So, I'd bounce my ball through the open garage door as the neighbors moved stuff in. If they tried to shoo me away, I'd cry because I couldn't find the ball. Or better yet, I'd fall and skin my knee so that they had to take me inside and clean me up and give me a bandage. The whole time, I would look around, listening to every conversation. The day the Vargas family moved in, I could tell right away that they were worthwhile targets for up-close surveillance. They had some of the weirdest stuff I've ever seen coming out of a moving van. Banks of old electronic equipment with tons of wires sticking out. Big plastic anatomical dummies. Giant specimen jars filled with deformed animals. Frogs with eyes on their legs. Or fish with another mouth on their bellies. I put my binoculars back in my jacket and bounced my ball down the hill toward their house. It flew into their garage. I chased after it when this girl appeared from behind the door and caught my ball. She was probably my age several inches taller than I was, with long, straight black hair, pulled back in a ponytail, plain white t-shirt, denim jacket, and jeans with a hole worn in the knee. She stared at me with intense, dark eyes and said, What are you doing here? I was just getting my ball, I said, stepping out of the way of two movers carrying a large red bureau with multicolored wax stains all over it. No, you weren't. She cocked her head to the side and raised her eyebrow. You were spying. I wasn't. That's okay. I like spies. She gave me back my ball and showed me her hands. I have nine fingers. I am a witch. I counted her fingers. Five on the left hand, four on the right. Wow, I thought. She really must be a witch. Then I realized what I was thinking and shook my head. Parlor tricks. I was falling for parlor tricks. How come you only have nine fingers? I used to have eleven, she said, pointing to a small silvery scar on her right hand. Two of them were too small, so my dad cut them off. He keeps them in a jar in his study. I stared at her open-mouthed, unable to come up with a reply. Maybe, I thought, I should just skip the whole spying thing this time. Uh... Thanks for helping me find my ball, I said. I have to go now. I'll go with you, she said, following me across the street and back up the hill. I've always wanted to see a spy's house. You don't want to come. I tried to think of a way to keep her out of my house. My mom's not well. She shrugged. Witches have good immune systems. As we neared my house, the lace curtains in our living room window fluttered. Mom must have seen us coming. In the time it took for us to finish climbing the steps, she and Grandpa had hidden the binoculars in the observation log and hastily dealt out a game of cards on the living room table. Mom did not look good. 
She tried to hide the thinness of her frame by wearing baggy sweats, but I could see the gauntness in her wrists and face. Kevin, she said, forcing a smile, you brought a friend to meet us. Are you going to introduce us? I'd never brought anyone to my house before. I looked at the nine-fingered girl and realized I hadn't asked her name. Um... The girl strolled through my living room, looking around. She touched the afghan-covered sofa and chairs and asked, Why does all your furniture face the window? I felt my cheeks flush hot with embarrassment. We like the sun. The girl nodded. Which is why the curtains are drawn. Fine, I thought. Get the introduction over with, and then get her the hell out of my house. This is my mom and grandpa, I said, and my name is Kevin. Maria, the girl finally said. I'm Maria Vargas. Maria, my mom said, still trying to smile. You'll be going to Washington school? Yes, fifth grade. So will Kevin. Maybe you'll be classmates. Why did you hide the binoculars? Maria asked. My mom glared at me, and her smile faltered as she turned back to Maria. What binoculars? The ones under your chair, Maria said. Mind if I use your bathroom? Before we could answer, Maria strode out of our living room and through the kitchen. I tried to catch her and tell her to use the bathroom upstairs, but it was too late. She was already staring at the neighborhood observation schedule that Mom had posted on the kitchen wall. Maria turned to me, a bemused smile playing on her face. Does the Cheng family really walk their dog at 6.36 every morning? You don't have to use the bathroom, I said, feeling the heat rush again to my face. You were just... spying? Yeah. I stood there a moment, wondering if I looked as stupid as I felt. I decided that I probably did. A spy who feels his privacy being violated. I think I like you, Maria said. Will you show me the rest of your house? I stared at her a moment. She leaned against the kitchen wall and met my gaze with her dark eyes. I sensed a moment of truce. Yeah, I said. I'll give you the grand tour, but only if you show me yours later. I've never seen a witch's house. Deal, she said, a smile lighting up her face. She held out her hand and we shook on it. I showed Maria the upstairs rooms. All were clean, spare, and dust-free. In the main bedroom, Grandma sat up in bed, crocheting her afghans. She smiled gently at Maria, but did not talk. Hi, Maria said. Stroke, I said. She can't talk. She can't even understand. Maria sat down on the edge of the bed and offered her hand to my Grandma. Grandma's smile deepened, and she laid down her crocheting and grasped Maria's hand in her gnarled fingers. She understands, Maria said. You just have to talk to her, right? Maria placed my hand on top of Grandma's, and Grandma's smile turned radiant. When we left Grandma, Maria looked back sadly. She should have a pet, something to love and care for, who will keep her company without needing to talk. We can't, I said. My mom is allergic to the world. As I showed her the rest of the house, I wondered if Maria acted this strange all the time. Visions of the rest of the school year flashed in front of my eyes. In fifth grade, it didn't matter how different a kid really was inside as long as he acted like everyone else. I'd always been careful to stand apart so that no one got near the real me.
If I started hanging out with someone weird, though, kids would whisper as I went down the hall, That's Kevin. He hangs out with that weird girl. Did I really want that? I showed her my room in the attic last. It was small, but it had a window that exited onto the roof, where I had my telescope mounted. We crawled out. Maria shivered, her long black ponytail whipping in the chill San Francisco wind. Wow, she said, looking out at the row of rooftops. You can see the whole neighborhood from here. Yeah, sometimes I sit up here late at night wrapped in a couple of afghans and look into all the lit windows. I like to imagine that I'm there, and I'm part of those families, you know? I know, Maria said, a sudden wistful note entering her voice. Sometimes I imagine that I'm someone else, too. We sat in silence for a while, our legs dangling off the edge of the roof. The wind picked up again, but I didn't want to break the moment. When Maria wrapped her arms around herself to stay warm, I realized I was being selfish. I asked her, Do you watch The Simpsons? Not often. My parents aren't much into television. My set doesn't get color, and it's the only one in the house, but if you'd like to watch with me... Maria smiled again. I'd love to. We crawled back inside, and I gave her a red and white afghan to wrap herself in. After I turned on the show, Maria stared at the small black and white screen and said, Maybe all it needs is adjusting. Adjusting? But she was already on her knees, fiddling with the knobs and the antenna. At her touch... The images on the screen flared to vivid color. I looked at her open-mouthed. How did you do that? She flexed her fingers. It's what I do, just like spying is what you do. Privately, I thought what Maria did was much cooler. I decided that I didn't care if the other kids at school thought I was weird. If Maria would let me, I'd hang out with her. At the end of the show, we walked slowly back downstairs, past the kitchen where I could hear the whirring sound of Mom mixing up some of her non-allergenic formula with distilled water in the blender. No wheat, no soy, no corn, no taste. Should I say goodbye to your mom? Maria asked. I peered inside of the kitchen. Mom had donned her surgical mask, the one she usually only wore when she went outside. Behind Mom was an open cabinet filled with box after box of that powdered crap, which was almost all she ate now. I pulled back. You'd better not, I said. I didn't know what set off Mom wearing the surgical mask, but I did know that it meant she would be in a foul mood. After Maria left, Mom leaned against the wall, wheezing slightly. I don't... I don't want that girl in here again. Why? She was covered, Mom said. Covered in cat hair. You know how dangerous that is for me. But, look, we'll have to vacuum everything tonight. If you want to see her, go to her house. I won't have to deal with her then. Mom crossed her arms, and that was that. My first impression to Maria's house was of sunlight and clutter. Forbidden allergens filled the rooms. Four friendly and shedding cats. Hundreds of plants from little spidery ferns that hang in the windows to flowering shrubs and pots, dusty books, and real food. When I met Maria's mom, her muscled arms covered in flour, she offered me a hot churro, dusted in cinnamon sugar. The candy-shaped pastry flaked as I bit into it. I closed my eyes and ate it slowly, savoring each mouthful. Miss Vargas laughed. 
This is a boy who appreciates food. You'll be staying for dinner? The kitchen smelled of garlic, onions, and beans that had simmered all day. I nodded a fervent yes. Maria gave me a tour of all the rooms. Her bedroom, which featured the red bureau, covered with scented candles. The reading room with overstuffed bookcases. The electronics workshop, filled with half-completed projects. The plastic anatomical dummy stood in the hallway outside of her father's study, the one room that we did not enter. As we passed, I stared at the slightly open door, knowing that I would have to return. Spies are like that. When Maria helped her mother make the tamales, I wandered back upstairs. Through the slightly open study door, I saw Dr. Vargas, a heavy-set man with a buzz cut and a polo shirt. He stared intently at a jar full of one-winged sparrows. When I knocked, he looked up and raised an eyebrow. Ah, you must be Kevin. Come in. I stepped inside. Framed medical degrees and unframed anatomy posters hung on the walls. A cat slept in one of the overstuffed chairs. Specimen jars cluttered every shelf. I scanned the shelves, wondering if I could spot the one thing that had brought me to this room. He smiled at me. Have you come to see Maria's finger jar? I sucked in my breath. How did you know? It's what I would want to see if I'd come for the first time. He got up and showed me a small mason jar that sent faint, oily rainbows sliding across the room when he held it to the light. Suspended in the jar were two fingers, tinier than even a newborn should have been. He let me hold the jar. It was heavier than I thought, and gave off a strange heat. I closed my eyes and pressed my cheek against the glass. Strange voices whispered in my ear, but I couldn't make out what they said. Reluctantly, I handed the jar back. Maria's magic. It comes from that jar, doesn't it? He sat very still holding the jar and did not answer for a long time. There is a magic to childhood, he said, that allows the young to change the world in a thousand small ways. We are all born with the ability and then slowly lose it. In Maria's case, part of it was preserved. Is that why you cut off her fingers? No. I amputated her fingers because they were too tiny and fused together to ever be useful to her. The magic was a lucky accident. He replaced the jar, showed me the other specimens in his collection of oddities, like the monkey's skull with a socket for a third eye in the middle of its forehead. Then Miss Vargas shouted for us, and we went downstairs to eat the best tamales I ever had. When I went home that night, Mom made me change clothes in the foyer. I had to seal the outfit that I wore to Maria's in a plastic bag before I toted it downstairs to the laundry room. I found I didn't care. It had been worth it. I soon spent most of my afternoons at Maria's. Sometimes I brought my binoculars, and we took turns making notes on the people in the neighborhood. On my twelfth birthday, I brought over a parcel sent by my dad, still on the brown wrapping paper. Maria raised an eyebrow when she saw it. Shouldn't you open that at home with your family? No, I said. My mom doesn't like to be reminded of my dad. I can never show her his presence. She touched my arm. I'm sorry. I'm used to it. I tore open my gift. It was a walkie-talkie set, complete with batteries. Damn it, I said, shoving the box on the table. What's wrong? 
It's the same gift he gave me last year. Didn't he remember? So he gave you the same gift twice, Maria said. That doesn't mean he doesn't love you. My dad gets real absent-minded, too. Come on, let's try them out. I bet they're cool. Okay. But when we tried them out, the damn things wouldn't even work. I got so angry that I took one of the walkie-talkies and slammed it into the floor again and again until Maria grabbed my arm. Kevin, she said, you've cracked it open. Is that enough, or do you want a hammer? I looked down at the walkie-talkie with its splintered casing, and I started to cry. It was all busted, like everything else having to do with my family. Maria held me until my sobs receded. With her arms still around me, she picked up the other walkie-talkie. You know, maybe we can use this for something else. I wiped my face dry on my sleeve and blinked at her. What good is one walkie-talkie? Maybe the problem with this set is that the two walkie-talkies weren't attuned to each other. If so, it doesn't matter if you busted one. Maybe we can get this one to pick up other signals. She played with its knobs, and then a crackling sound, and a brisk voice issued over the walkie-talkie's speakers. Check out at 10.15 at 36 and Balboa. I repeat, we need a squad car at 36 and Balboa. I forced myself to shut the jaw I had hanging open. Police channels? She nodded. I hugged her, and we took turns eavesdropping on law enforcement for the rest of the afternoon. It was the best birthday present I'd ever had. Late that night, I wrapped myself in one of my grandma's afghans and climbed up onto the roof. I trained my telescope on the lit windows of the neighborhood. The last one I did was Maria's. Somehow, she always knew when I was watching. She looked up from the book she was reading and smiled. I smiled back, though I knew she couldn't see me. One day, as Maria and I walked back from school, I saw an ambulance parked outside my house. No, I whispered. Kev, what is it? I didn't answer her. Had my grandma had another stroke? Had something happened to my grandfather? I froze, uncertain of what to do. Then I saw two paramedics carry my mom out on a stretcher, then ran frantically up the hill, leaving Maria far behind. Mom's face and neck were swollen and red, and she was gasping despite the tube they'd forced down her throat to help her breathe. What happened? I screamed. What are you doing with my mom? But the answer came to me after those first panic questions spilled out. Anaphylactic shock. An allergy attack severe enough to kill. I stood there, rooted to the spot, uncertain of what to do. One of the paramedics had started to give her oxygen. The other looked up and said, Your mom's very, very sick. Tell the old man that if he hasn't found the epinephrine yet, we're going to have to transport without it. Epinephrine? I had to find the epinephrine. The mission jerked me into action. I ran to the house, up the stairs, and past Grandpa, who was tearing the bathroom cabinet apart. In Mom's bedroom, there was a chair where she dumped out the contents of her purse when changing bags. There was the EpiPen, along with the keys and a lipstick I had not seen her use in years. I ran back and tried to give the EpiPen to the paramedic. A family member has to do it, he said nervously. Paramedics aren't authorized to administer epinephrine in this state. Do you think the old man... Mom taught me to use the EpiPen when I was six, I said flatly. I'll do it. But I was shaking when I gave her the shot. I thought, what if this is it? 
What if this is the last time I get to see my mom? My heart pounding, I climbed in behind my mom as they loaded her in. I'm going with her, I told the paramedics, daring them to tell me no. The paramedics just looked at Grandpa, who had stumbled out of the house. He nodded and then turned back to stay with Grandma. As our ambulance raced through San Francisco's twisted streets, I held my mom's inflamed, sweaty hand tightly. Her breathing was still ragged, and her blue eyes were wide with panic. I wanted to tell her that I loved her. I wanted to tell her that I was scared. Instead, I told her about all the spying Maria and I had done at school. About how Clayton, the biggest bully in our school, had tried to replace a baby bird in its nest when he thought no one was looking. About how we had discovered that Mr. Morris, the biology teacher, wrote love poems to Mr. Randall, the music teacher, in the margins of his class notes. About how the school secretary read the smutty parts from romance novels aloud to the office plants to make them grow better. Despite the tube in her throat, the corners of Mom's mouth turned upward slightly, and she squeezed my hand back. And I began to wonder, what had caused her allergic reaction? Was it something that I had tracked in? The hospital wasn't so bad. The stiff decor was kind of like our house, only without the Afghans. They gave Mom more epinephrine, and her symptoms finally went back to normal. After we talked to the medical staff, we still knew nothing. Maybe a little bit of peanut got into her formula. Maybe she developed a new allergy to the formula itself. There was no way of knowing. One of the doctors suggested switching brands. When we left the hospital, Mom was swearing under her breath. Switch brands? The asshole. How many brands does he think I have left? What the hell am I supposed to eat anymore? The next mistake could kill me. The next mistake. I brooded over this statement all the way home. Maybe we can make our own formula, I said, as we came in the door. Maybe, she said, but she was shaking her head. I'm sick of all of this, Kevin. I'm sick of my allergies, sick of living my life this way. Why am I trapped like this? She walked off to her room and closed the door behind her so that I wouldn't hear her cry. But I still did. It was very late, but I could not sleep. I left her house to walk across the street to the one place I could go. The main floor of Maria's house was dark, but there were still lights on in the bedroom windows when I rang the bell. Mrs. Vargas answered the door. Kevin, is everything all right? Maria told us about the ambulance. Do you think your husband knows anything about allergies? I blurted. She shook her head. He's a surgeon, sweetie, but maybe he knows someone. I could tell from her voice that she did not believe her husband could help me. I didn't either. It was not medicine that I sought now, but a miracle. Maria appeared at the door, studying me with her dark eyes. Want to talk? I nodded and followed her up the stairs. She opened the door to her room and then thought better of it. Books, papers, and dirty laundry covered the bed and the floor. Let's go to the study, she said. We sat in the overstuffed chairs of her father's study. My mom, I said. My mom almost died today. She ate her formula. She was so careful, and it still went wrong. I don't know what we'll do now. I grabbed Maria's hands. You must help us. She shook her head. I can't. 
I'm not asking much, I said. Make it so my mom can eat something. Or if you can't do that, maybe you could help my grandma so my mom doesn't have to take care of her while she's dealing with this. I can't do any of that, she said softly. I thought you were my friend. I am. She got up and started pacing the room. You could fix televisions. You can make walkie-talkies pick up channels that they were never built to receive. Why can't you help my mom and grandma? It's big magic, she said, pulling her hands away from me. What you're talking about might be more magic than I could do in my entire life. Everything I do is small, because that's all I can do. What good is it, then? I picked up the warm jar in which floated the two tiny fingers, and I shook it. What the hell good is it? Kevin, she said, put down the jar, please. Parlor tricks! That's all your magic is worth. I whirled a yell at her and hurled the jar to the ground. No! Maria screamed. The glass smashed and the liquid sprayed up in a thousand rainbows. How could you? And I didn't know the answer. I dropped to my knees and cut my hands trying to gather the pieces, but it was too late. The tiny fingers lay broken under the shards of glass. Whispering voices rose from all corners of the room. Say your wish, Maria hissed, grabbing my shirt by the scruff of the neck. But say it! I paid enough for it. I'm sorry, I whispered, my hands bleeding. I just wanted to heal my mom and grandma. The oily rainbow swirled around me, filling the room so hot and thick that I could barely breathe. The whispering voices rose to a shout, and then they were gone. Maria dropped to the floor next to me, sobbing and hitting me over and over. I let her. My grandma has started speaking haltingly and now understands everything I say to her. I read to her every day. My mom is still allergic to wheat and peanuts, but has discovered that she can eat most other things in small amounts. She's been talking about trying to find part-time work. I watch Maria every day from my telescope, but she never looks up at me. Whether you loved or hated today's story, we hope you'll keep checking out more audio fiction. Audible.com is the internet's leading provider of spoken audio entertainment providing digital versions of 60,000 audiobooks and counting that you can download to your personal computer or MP3 player. Listen any when, anywhere. Audible has been kind enough to offer a free audiobook to PodCastle listeners who sign up at audiblepodcast.com castle today. If I were to pick up something from Audible today, I'd grab Antibodies by Charles Strauss. The only Strauss I've read is a short story collaboration he wrote with Cory Doctorow. The lack of Strauss is a glaring hole in my reading experience. Strauss is popularly lauded as one of the bright spots in today's science fiction world, and I know I'm missing out. Again, Audible's generous offer is available only through their special URL for PodCastle listeners, audiblepodcast.com castle. Go and download your free audiobook today. Daniel Abraham's The Cambest and Lord Iron was episode number 51. It was very well received. On the blog, Divya said, 
Loved this story. The finance part of it was quite interesting too, though the ending was a letdown. And Jeff Height said, Wonderful story. It made me think about what I'm doing with my life. I'm sure that was the point. A life of service to who and to what end? Hmm, more to think about. Leap Minion was puzzled at first by the answer to the question of the relative value of the lives of a king and a prisoner. It seemed to me, Leap Minion wrote, that the comparison wasn't good because it was measuring the value of the king's lifespan to the king and the value of the prisoner's lifespan to his keepers, not to the prisoner himself. But then I realized that this paralleled the first scenario in the story, where it's pointed out that the value of things comes only from the contexts in which they can be traded. If you can only sell some obscure defunct currency as novelty wrapping paper, then that's what determines its value, not the desires of those unwilling or unable to sell or buy it. Likewise, the prisoner's desires don't have any bearing on the value of the days of his life, since the prisoner doesn't get to make any such decisions. Board commenters enjoyed it as well. Sir Jolt wrote, the characters were well-drawn, the narrative well-structured, and the fact that it broke down into several shorter stories gave it the feeling of a Sherlock Holmes-styled series without having to actually break it up. As was already stated, even when the arguments were a little predictable, they didn't come off as trite and were put across in a manner that sustained interest. Come on over to forum.escapeartist.info and let us know what you think. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnitude.com. You can discuss this episode of Podcastle or nearly anything else on our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartists.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Someone said, there's a bit of magic in everything, and some loss to even things out.